We're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. The 10th chapter. Page 846 in the Blue Bible in front of you. We're going to begin reading in the 32nd verse of Mark chapter 10. You follow along as I read out loud. Mark records for us that they, that's Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want to do you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard what the James and John had asked, they began to be indignant at them. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho and... As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And when they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling for you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. 
We've been going through Mark's Gospel week after week. This is the tenth sermon as we go through this. We've got a few more weeks before we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection at Easter time. I want to give you a background of what it is that we talk about when we talk about the Gospel. The Gospel, we are in danger of losing what that word means. It becomes one of those words that we throw around all the time. Oh, I believe the Gospel. We preach the Gospel. But what is it? So each week we've been looking at what exactly is the good news that comes with Jesus Christ. And we're going to do something today that we did last week. And that is we're going to take a couple of stories and we're going to put them together. By looking at two stories together, we can actually get a deeper understanding because we get a bigger narrative. We get a bigger picture of what's actually going on here we get a better idea of what Jesus has been teaching. Mark tells us, to start off the section that we just read, he puts it in context, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. This is the final journey that Jesus takes on his way to be crucified. For the third time now, Jesus tells the disciples he's going to be killed. But now, Jesus gives more to the story. Yes, he's going to be killed, but he says, I'm going to be abused before they kill me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. Flogging was a terrible form of punishment. It wasn't just a whipping. It was a whipping where your flesh would be ripped off your back. Flogging was so horrible... You could die from that alone. Jesus was flogged and then crucified. Look at the second part of verse 32. We're told that the people with Jesus were amazed. What were they amazed at? What's happened here that's so amazing? Well, I think it's probably because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be killed. He's told his disciples repeatedly that that's what's going to happen to him. And yet, we still find him going toward Jerusalem. That's amazing. I'm telling you, if that was me, people around me would be amazed too. They'd be amazed at how fast I could run the other direction. Jesus was not running away. Notice, Mark tells us that as they're making this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is out front. He's leading the way to his own death. That's remarkable that Jesus would do this. Jesus is not having to be drugged, kicking and screaming to his fate. But notice... What Mark tells us then, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said, well, what do you want? Verse 37. And they said, grant to us that we can sit one on your right hand, one on your left, in your glory. Now put this in context. Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. 
Again, he's told them, I'm going to be brutally killed and suffer much. To which James and John say, yeah, that sounds really terrible. Do you have a minute? Because we got something we want to ask you. We want to ask you if you can do something for us. These guys don't get it. To say that they're clueless doesn't even come to fully grasp what's going on here. They're just, they're, they miss it. James and John, remember, are part of what we call the inner three. Peter, James, and John. These were the closest people to Jesus. Jesus, can you make sure that we get the best seats in your kingdom? They weren't asking for front row seats. They were asking for seats on either side of Jesus. In other words, they wanted to be Jesus' right-hand man and his left-hand man. We want to be the top two people in your kingdom. They had the same spirit that Peter had. Remember a few weeks ago when Jesus said he was going to be killed? And Peter says, you're not going to die. Jesus said, you're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of men. Now James and John are thinking about the future and what glory they might have. What position they might have with Jesus. Don't forget, though, Jesus does have a spot on his right hand and on his left hand. Reserved for two criminals who are going to be crucified with him. One on the left and one on the right. Jesus asks James and John, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? Now that idea of a cup that you drink comes from Isaiah and other places It's an image, the cup of suffering. To drink it is to take part in it. He says, can you drink this cup of suffering? Can you be baptized into the baptism of fire that I'm going to be going through? They have no idea what Jesus is going to go through. He's told them, but they still don't get it. And he says, can you drink this cup? And they're like, sure we can. Yeah, we can do that. They believe that if they can endure a little hardship with Jesus, well, then it'll all pay off and they can have seats of glory. They can be granted seats of power. They can have corner offices. They can be important. And they understand that, man, if we're faithful to Jesus for a little bit, man, this is going to pay off. Hey, no pain, no gain, right? We can do this. Jesus says, oh guys, you are going to drink from this cup. You are going to be baptized with this baptism. In the book of Acts, we're told that James was killed. He was executed. He does drink from this cup. He doesn't know it at this time. He doesn't believe it at this time. But notice their response to Jesus' question. Look at verse 39. He says, can you do this? Can you drink? In verse 39, they said, we're able. Really, guys? 
You think you're able. You guys are nuts. Not because you're not able, but because you're only able because of God's grace. Are you with me? Oh yeah, we can do this. This is the male bravado. This is the macho in these guys coming out. Oh yeah, we can do that. We can do nothing apart from God's grace. And they learned that lesson later on, but right now they don't get it. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about, but they're like, oh yeah, I can do that. Then we're told in the story that the other ten disciples find out what James and John have done in asking for these premier seats. And Mark tells us that the other ten are not too happy. Now, are the other ten disciples upset because of how insensitive James and John have been in asking for seats of power when Jesus has just said he's going to be killed? Heck no. They're upset because James and John got in line ahead of them. Oh man, we should have thought about that. They're going to get dibs on those seats. Even they're not thinking about Jesus at that point. They're like children. I get the front seat. I call shotgun. It's all about them and what they want. And they get mad at the other two for what they've asked because they'd rather carry a grudge than carry a cross. Jesus uses this moment, though, of disagreement among the disciples to teach them what is most important. Remember last week? What was the fight last week? Last week, the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. Well, Jesus goes and teaches them again the same thing that we learned last week. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be with you. Whoever would be great must be the servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Jesus again teaches His disciples what discipleship is all about. It's not about power. It's not about position. It's not about telling other people what they've got to do. In our culture, the more powerful you are, the more important you are, you have more people under you that you can order around. Jesus says our power in the faith comes from being the servant. Not ordering others around, not telling others what to do, but being servant of all. And then notice what Jesus says there in verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus is showing what true discipleship is, and then He says, hey, and I'm doing it too. Even the Son of God is here to be a servant. 
not to be served. The logic that Jesus uses is very simple. It's called from the greater to the lesser. Jesus said, if I have to do this, if this is what God's calling is in my life, then how much more you? If this is true for our Lord and Master, how much more true is that for us? If Jesus is expected to serve, then why wouldn't we be expected to serve? Jesus has been telling the disciples what is going to happen to him. And then he says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom. I'm going to pay for people's sins. Stick with me. Up to this point, he's been telling them what is going to happen. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be resurrected. But now he tells them why this is going to happen. He's giving his life for a purpose. It's not just being taken away and being wasted. Jesus' life was the most productive life ever. And he was cut down in his early 30s. But he, his life was given as a ransom for the world. That's the why of Jesus' death. To pay for our sins. And in this picture we see that disciples of Jesus are to be servants. If you're not serving others in the church... When you come to church, if you're not serving others, then your coming to church doesn't count as service to God. Did you hear me? We want to take our coming to church as, whoop, point for me. I did something for God. This is my service to God. Coming to worship on Sundays is important and you ought to be here. We are to be here to worship God. But we don't get points for this. Jesus did not call for his followers to just come to church. Jesus said we are to serve. Too many of us come to church, we just sit and do little or nothing for anyone in the church. We do little or nothing for the kingdom other than just come to church. Yet, if we stop and add, oh, I'm a good Christian. And the first thing that we list as proof that we're good Christians is, well, I go to church every week. It's circular logic, but the whole logic is flawed because Jesus said the greatest is going to be the one who's servant. And so if you're not serving, you're not great at all. And yet we think we're good Christians. Because we're not taking seriously what Jesus is saying here and we're imposing our own judgment and saying, well, hey, going to church makes you a good Christian, so I must be a great Christian because I go all the time. But then we come in the text to the story of Jesus healing a blind man, beginning in verse 46. We've seen Jesus heal blind people before. So there's nothing new here. There is, this is not the point of the story that Jesus can heal blind people. We've already seen that. This healing 
actually adds little or nothing to our understanding of Jesus. Because if you can heal one guy, you can surely heal all blind guys. Disabled people in that day would sit by the road. They'd sit in very public places so that people coming by would give them charity. Well, he's right by the road where all the pilgrims are going up to this religious festival, the Passover. It's a great spot to get charity. Why? Because you're getting all the religious people who are going off to celebrate and worship God. That was one of the laws in the Old Testament that you give. Because they didn't have welfare in that day. They didn't have social security. They didn't have disability. This was their welfare. People were expected to give to help the poor and the, the sick. This man hears that Jesus is coming by, probably because there was a whole caravan of people going with Jesus, not because of what was going to happen to Jesus, but because it was time for the Passover. And so they would have all been traveling as a group. And so he hears this commotion. He hears this group. Hey, who is that? He's blind. He can't see. And so they say, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth, a bunch of people with him. And as soon as he hears that it's Jesus, his ears perk up. And he starts calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Since the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of David, his terminology there of referring to Jesus as the Son of David is another way of saying he's calling Jesus the Messiah. He believes that Jesus is able to fulfill the promise in Isaiah 35 that the Messiah will be able to open the eyes of the blind. He believes that. How did he come to believe that? How does he know about Jesus' power to heal, let alone anything about Jesus? We don't know. We're not told. He must have heard something about Jesus. Is there a blind person network? I heard about some blind guy that that Jesus healed. And somewhere in his heart, he must have heard about a blind person being healed. And he probably said to himself, man, I hope that guy comes by. I've heard about this guy who can open the eyes of the blind. Man, I hope he comes. And he hears Jesus is there. And he's like, yes, now's my chance. He jumps up. He starts calling out to Jesus. Son of David. He's saying the same thing about Jesus that Peter said back in chapter 8 when Jesus said, who do you think I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. Well, that's what this guy is saying. Some of the people there, though, when they hear him calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, they're like, shh, quiet down. Don't bother him. Which is always the case. Whenever we stand up for Jesus, whenever we begin to speak out for Jesus, there's always somebody there. You ought not to say that. Shh. Be quiet. But the blind man will not be silenced. Verse 48 says that when they told him to be quiet, he cried out all the more. I like this guy. You're not going to tell me what to do. And he cries out more and more for Jesus To have mercy on him. I love what happens next in the story. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. 
People had just been trying to silence him. Don't bother Jesus. Be quiet. Jesus said, get him over here. And they run over to him and they said, hey, we got some great news. That guy that we didn't want you to bother, he wants to talk to you. That guy that we didn't want you to go to, he now wants you to go to him. You see how the crowd flips? And they're like, hey, this is great news. Jesus wants you. He wants you to come to him. Well, why hadn't they been with him in supporting him and coming to Jesus? Are you with me? When he was crying out, they should have gone to Jesus and Jesus, do you hear this guy over here? He could use your help. They're trying to stifle him one moment and then the next moment they're like, hey, we got some good news for you. Jesus wants to talk to you. Hey, if it had been up to us, you wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. But now, hey, you go talk to him. We're like that too, aren't we? Flipping and flopping all around. Can't make up our mind. Notice that even though Jesus is on his way to the cross, he has time to stop and deal with the blind man. Man, that's great. Jesus, at a moment where we would all be wrapped up in ourselves, has time to stop and to help this blind guy. Why? Because Jesus has just told us that the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And so what does Jesus do? He stops and He serves this guy. He helps him. Because Jesus didn't just preach this message of service. He lived it. He practiced what He preached. When are we going to get it, people? Service is not something that's beneath us. Service is something that we strive for. Christianity isn't just about talk. We talk a good game, folks. Oh, I believe in God. I believe in the power of God. I believe in Jesus. But it's not about talk, people. It's about walking the walk. Then there's a little detail in this story that we don't want to miss. We can often learn more from the little details in the story that seem insignificant. Verse 50. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Verse 50 could simply say, he came to Jesus. It doesn't. It says he sprang up. But that's really not that noteworthy. He wanted to talk to Jesus. He's crying out to Jesus. As soon as he hears that Jesus wants to talk to him, of course he's going to spring up. What? You think he's going to call out to Jesus, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And they're going to say, hey, Jesus wants to talk to me. Yeah, I'm not busy. I'm busy right now. I don't want to be bothered. Of course he's going to jump up. He's going to be excited. This is what he wanted. What about the cloak, though? Why does Mark make a point of telling us that he threw his cloak off? 
had Mark left out that detail, would we have been sitting there reading this story? I wonder what he did with his cloak. The other gospel writers who tell us this same story, they leave this little detail out. So it begs the question, Mark, what are you telling us this for? Why are you making this point that he threw his cloak to the side? Some people say that beggars in that day wore specific garments that would identify them as beggars, as blind people. So for him to throw this cloak off could be an act of faith of him saying, I'm not going to need this anymore. He hasn't even gotten to Jesus yet, and by faith he already believes, I'm going to be healed. I won't need this cloak anymore. Others say that this could be Mark's way of saying that he left what he had to go to Jesus. Remember when Jesus called his disciples, they left their boats. When Matthew was called and he was a tax collector, we're told he left his tax booth to follow Jesus. When the rich man came to Jesus and said he wanted eternal life, Jesus said, you got to sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Mark could be telling us this blind man is letting go of everything he's got so he can go to Jesus. Even though he doesn't have much, he's not going to let even that get in his way from going to Jesus. He gets to Jesus and Mark tells us that he's healed. He receives his sight. Verse 52, Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. As we read this story, though, we see that Bartimaeus received something more important than his sight. You see, he had his spiritual eyes opened as well. How else could he have seen who Jesus really is if his spiritual eyes had not been opened? Notice his disobedience to Jesus here. Jesus said, you can go on your way. And Mark said he didn't. He started following Jesus. Because now that his eyes have been opened, he sees what's most important. Tell him, folks, if that had been us, if our eyes had been opened, how many of us, I got to get home. I want to show everybody my, my eyes I can see. I got a lot of seeing to catch up on. I've been blind for so long, I got some seeing I need to do. And yet what we see is this man said, I've seen all I need to see, and that's in him right there. And he starts following Jesus. Why? Because he sees that following Jesus is more important than physical stuff. His eyes have been opened. How many of us get so hung up on physical healing, physical stuff, that we miss out on the spiritual, the most important? We need spiritual healing more than we need physical healing. Now, those are the two stories. The story of James and John and their request and this blind man and the healing. Let's put them together now. What can we learn by putting these stories together? You see, each of these stories... 
could be a sermon all by itself. There's enough in each one of those stories, and they're often taught that way, just as individual stories. But as we put these two stories together, we learn something that I think Mark wants us to see. You see, if you go back to the where we started this section in chapter 8, do you know what starts this section of Jesus talking about discipleship and the clueless disciples? It's the healing of a blind person. What ends this section of Jesus talking about discipleship and what it truly means? The healing of a blind man. One of the ways that Mark is telling us that what's between those two stories is important is by bookending this whole section with this same miracle, a healing of a blind person. Both stories tell us that Jesus asks a question. Verse 36 and 51, Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man comes to Jesus and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? It is not a similar question. It's the exact same question. Both stories. That's no accident. But notice the different answers that are given. Jesus asks Peter, or excuse me, James and John, what they want him to do for them. What does he, what do you want? What do you want for me to do? And they said, well, we want positions of power. We want these positions of importance. Jesus asks the blind man what he wants, and he said, I want my sight. This is key. The issue is not what brings us to Jesus. The issue is what keeps us following him. Yes, the blind man came to Jesus for something. He did want something. He wanted his eyes opened. That might seem selfish to us. But what he does with his eyes once he gets his sight back shows us it wasn't for selfish reasons. He starts following Jesus. When James and John come to Jesus and say, we want these positions of importance. Why? Oh, because we're thinking about other people and how we might serve them. Yeah, right. They wanted the prime seats, right hand, left hand, so they could be served. What we learn in these two stories is that following Jesus is not to be about what we get from Jesus. Following Jesus is about what we give to Him in service. 1 John 3.16 says, He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Just like Jesus did. Discipleship is not about coming and getting it's about coming and giving. Because of the way that Mark arranges these stories about the blind men receiving their sight, he puts between those two stories of the healings the disciples and how blind they are. Jesus said, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, you're not. Jesus said, I'm going to be killed. And James and John said, how about those good seats? We want those seats. In the middle of Jesus opening the eyes of these two blind men, we see that Jesus has some eyes to open here as well with the disciples. 
clearly. Mark wants us to think about spiritual blindness. Not everyone sees who Jesus really is. We often make the mistake that people who don't follow Jesus don't follow Jesus because they're just sinful, wicked people and they see who Jesus is and they just reject Him. What Scripture teaches is people who reject Jesus reject Him because they don't see Him. They're blind. We often mistakenly think of these people as hard-hearted. They are. But their bigger problem is they're just clueless. They're blind. They don't see it. Have you ever wondered why don't they get it? I tell them about Jesus. I tell them who He is. They just don't. And we're like, what's wrong with them? Do you understand that the question is not why don't they see it? The real question is why do we Not why don't they, but why do we? Why do we see Jesus? How can we believe in Him? It's because God has opened our eyes. Not because we're better than them. Not because they're so wicked. Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, He said, speaking to the disciples, He said, your eyes are blessed because you can see what prophets longed to see but couldn't. We look at the prophecies of Isaiah and how he predicts the things that are going to happen to Jesus. Isaiah didn't know the half of the story. Jesus said, we're blessed because our eyes have been opened to see who Jesus really is. Not because we're better than other people. And when somebody looks at you and says, oh, oh, you think you're better than I am. Uh Uh-uh. No, we don't. It's only the grace of God that has opened our eyes. Jesus tells them, you got to give up your life. you got to serve others. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we have those seats now? They don't get it. Jesus says, you got to serve others and they're over there. Yeah, hold that thought. I need to measure these curtains for this window here. I want, I want to make this office real nice. They're missing it. But people, what about us? Oh, oh I, I'm not clueless like those disciples. I can see what's really going on here. Really? If we're not serving others, I don't know how much plainer Jesus can make it. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be a servant. And yet we're not doing it. What are we missing today? We're still just as clueless as the disciples. Jesus calls for followers who are laid down their lives for others. And we come to Jesus with our hands out for the stuff we want. And this is where we make a huge mistake when it comes to church. We think that coming to church is an act of following Christ. It's not. Coming to church is an act of worship that we give to God. 
Jesus calls for us to take up a cross. And a cross was used for one thing, to die. That's it. The gospel, the good news, is that God has opened our eyes so we can see the truth. This blind guy could see Jesus more clearly than the disciples in some way. And yet, how many of us think we get it? But the lives that we're living show that we're just as clueless. Because for too many of us, we've become Jesus groupies. We follow Jesus for what He can do for us. We flipped it around. Today, being a Christian isn't so much about living for Jesus, but trying to get everything we can from Jesus. Why is it that churches have to beg and beg and beg to get people to do anything, and then people sit there and decide not to help anyway? Why is that? Jesus was willing to die for us, but we can't seem to be inconvenienced for Him. I'm just too busy. Something's wrong here. We call ourselves disciples. We think of ourselves as good Christians. But in my dad's terms, we're good for nothing Christians. We can't be counted on for anything. Well, yeah, we can take up a seat on Sundays. But other than that, what are you good for? Jesus didn't call for seat fillers. Let me remind you, being a Christian is not about just what Jesus can do for us. Being a Christian is about serving Christ. And how? How do we serve Christ? By serving other people. That's how Jesus served God the Father. By coming and being a servant for us. Dying for us. We can't give. I thought about this a few years ago. I can't think of one thing that we can do in service for God that doesn't involve other people. You know what I'm talking about? Name one thing that you can do for God that doesn't involve doing something for somebody else. Because God doesn't need what we can do for Him. There's nothing we can do just for God. Everything we do for God involves helping other people. To be a follower of Christ is to be a servant of others. At this point in the story, the disciples are still clueless. But they eventually get it. They do. Most of the disciples eventually end up giving up their lives as they spread the gospel. They die because they're spreading the faith. They're preaching the good news. The question for you this morning is, do you get it? Too many of us today are what I call get-and-go Christians. What's a get-and-go Christian? It's kind of like a convenience store. What do you do? You don't do all your shopping at a convenience store. If you did, you're crazy. But if you're on your way home and you don't want to go fight the grocery store, you might stop at the convenience store just to grab a gallon of milk. Right? I'm not doing my whole... I'd go broke if I shopped in there, right? 
You just get and go. You grab what you want and you get out of there. How many of us view God that way? We're get and go Christians. I need something, so we run to God to get it and then we're gone. If that's the way you're following Christ, then I'm going to tell you something this morning. You're not a Christian. Is that harsh? Good. It's meant to be. Too many of us have become get-and-go Christians. We're using our Christian faith simply as a means to get what we want and nothing else. God can't, can't get anything from me because I'm too busy with my life for anything else. And we need to stop this nonsense this lie from Satan that we can come to church for an hour a week and be a great Christian and do nothing. There's absolutely, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, there's absolutely nothing in Jesus' teaching that confirms that idea. Nothing. Jesus has been teaching the exact opposite. True Christians serve others. If you don't serve others, there's a problem. And so this morning, we're going to have a formal invitation, an opportunity for you to say, you know what, I get it. I've bought into the lie that all I have to do is come to church, and that's good enough. But I hear Jesus saying that's not good enough. That He's looking for people who are going to lay down their lives in service for others. I want to be one of those people that gets it. If so, great. The altar's open. Come up here and pray and say, Jesus, I want to... I want to be for you 100%. I want to stop this being a good church attender and thinking that's enough. Some of you are here today and you've never made a public profession of your faith. You've never said, I want to let everybody know that I'm following Jesus Christ. I want to repent of my sins. I want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to do this life completely. If you've never done that, now's the opportunity for you to do that. Or you can stay comfortably where you are, not serving others, thinking you're okay, and missing the point, missing the boat. Which is it going to be with you? Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for this time of decision. God, I don't want to scare the hell out of people. But I do want to scare us to the point where we stop being so complacent. Where we stop this silliness that good Christians can do nothing of what Jesus says we're to do. And yet we'll pat ourselves on the back until our shoulders hurt. God, break our hearts that we flipped this around and made it about what you can do for us rather than what we can do for you. God, convict us of our selfish hearts that we actually want to make you our servant to do everything that we want even as we keep telling you we have no time for you. God, I pray for that person here today who's never committed his or her life to you, never been baptized the way Scripture teaches. God, I pray that you give them the courage to stand up and say, I want to be a true follower of Jesus. I want my life to be about Him. He's truly opened my eyes to see, and I want to follow Him now. God, be blessed 
be honored by our obedience right now. We pray in Jesus' name.